Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Charlotte Bradley, who's the head of the family team at Kingsley Nutley. It's great to have you here, Charlotte. Well, thank you, Suzanne, for inviting me to speak to you. Um, so um, I imagine you've got a few questions for me. I have, and I suppose yeah. starting at the very beginning, because it's a really good place to start. Um, how did you get started in your career? Well, I didn't do a law degree. Um, originally, when I went to university, I thought I wanted to be a probation officer. Um, and while I was there, I was involved with the local prison in Bristol. I visited a prisoner who was in prison for murdering his wife. And I also, with a friend, friend helped run a prison crash uh, for the children of the visitors whose partners were in prison. Um, so after I, before I left university, I applied to do social work um, post-grad. Um, but they suggested I took a year out, not surprisingly, I was very young, um, and I got a temping job at the CPS in Bristol. And while I was at the CPS, I realised I actually quite enjoyed the law. So I then got some um, training, um, some uh, work experience in London, um, wanting to be a criminal lawyer at a firm, Russell Jones & Walker, um, mm -hmm. but also had a week's work experience with James Pirrie, who we both know very well. And I loved my work experience. Um, James really opened my eyes up to family law. Um, I was 21, having never done any law, but he took me to conferences and it therefore affected where I applied for my training. So I ended up uh, applying for training at Gordon Dads, which in those days was one of the leading family law firms. And um, I was offered a job at, for post-qualification in the family team had wonderful experience with well-known names like Douglas Lexiou, Jill Doran, James Harkis, um, all of these very good partners and had wonderful family experience and realized that actually that was what I loved. And they didn't do criminal law at, at Gordon Dad's, so I didn't really ever get a chance to explore that. That's absolutely brilliant. And it's great to hear you mentioning those people who've helped you and were pivotal in your career. I think all of us have got that story and it's fantastic. So tell me, what do you like best about working in family law? Um, I think in terms of family law, well, I came to Kingsley Napoli so two years after I qualified. So I think that was a very uh, a, a good time to go. Um, but really from my training and throughout at, at Gordon Dad's and now at Kingsley Napoli, I mean, it really is engaging with the clients. I mean, I absolutely love first client meetings. I'm sure most family lawyers would say that. Um, I think I'm inherently curious interested in other people's lives um i mean i've been you wouldn't say no nosy then charlotte nosy is that is <laughs> nosy is absolutely right i think we'd all probably say that um, and i've been qualified now for 25 years which i think is one of the reasons perhaps we're speaking um and i think being qualified for so long and having so much experience i mean you do see themes of course and with the clients we've got but every single client and every single case is different and i think that's what i really enjoy i mean i love the mix of the financial and children work i've always done both um i love the creativity of working out financial settlements enjoying negotiations especially when they're face to face but i also like the children work particularly um sort of ones with an international aspect. I like looking at strategy and, and really helping people. I know it's, um, it, everybody would say that, but I mean, that's why I, I really enjoy what I do to see people kind of at the worst times of their lives, but then to come out the, uh, the other side, feeling more empowered, feeling more, un they understand their, particularly when you're acting for wives, they understand their finances. So yes, I still love it, thankfully. 
And is there anything that you specifically specialise in, any area of law, any type of law? Yeah. And I think, um, like a lot of us, our sort of interests or our specialisms have come from particular cases that you've done and then you've enjoyed that particular case and then you've had the confidence to deal with other cases sort of of a similar type. I mean, for example, um, I've over the years I've developed specialism in sort of international jurisdiction cases. Certainly that's, I know um, people can recognize that, especially European cases and particularly French cases. Um, I've been lucky enough to go to the Court of Justice in Luxembourg over uh, Brussels II jurisdiction case, which of course <laughs> is not going to be Changing. possible in the future. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I mean, my interest in, in, in those cases actually arose from one of the last pre-Brussels II cases 20 years ago, and I was acting for a French husband. It's actually a reported case, CNC, where before Robert Johnson, you know, who's, mm -hmm. I think he, he died recently, um, and we managed to get a, a transfer um, under the forum convenience arguments back to France. Um, and it's interesting that the time we are at, you know, post-Brexit next year, the same arguments are going to be applied in our European cases. So that's one area. Um, um, I have to say just on the French side, I'm embarrassed to say I'm not actually uh, a great French speaker, as, as, as people might think, because I've done a lot of French cases. Um, I mean, I can easily help my 11 year old son with his French homework. Um, and I seem to know a lot of and have good friendships with French lawyers and know a lot about legal French legal terminology. But luckily at Kingston Apley, we've surrounded by a lot of fluent French speakers, which obviously helps in the cases. Um, but in sort of in terms of sort of another interest I have and have developed over the years is schedule one cases. And again, that arose from a particular case that I had again in the High Court, where I, I wasn't even a partner. And it was a case that had been very kindly referred to me by a psychiatrist, where I was acting for the mother who had a severely disabled child, as well as two other children. And this poor child had several hundred seizures a day. Um, and then the father had gone abroad for tax reasons and there were significant disclosure issues. Again, that's something that uh, interests me. And they'd lived an amazing lifestyle, um, but the original settlement that had been one um, had not properly anticipated the child's really significant needs, um, you know, the real needs that he had. So we ended up um, having to get lots of expert evidence, um, neurological specialists. It was a bit like a clinical negligence case, but we achieved a fantastic settlement for her and the client. And actually what I remember was the two day post hearing. We'd got a, we'd agreed it on the second day of a 10 day uh, high court hearing where we managed to agree um, costs, but it was standard costs because uh, we were, were agreeing it. Um, and I remember I had to battle for two days in the assessment hearing where I was managed to recover 85% of the cost, which for the client, uh, obviously that was an, a, an amazing achievement. And it's funny all these years, although I've obviously done a lot of Schedule 1 cases, um, going back to James Pirry, who I first met when I was 21 with no law experience, I've ended up writing two versions of the Schedule 1 book with him, which he's led, of course, who's the real expert. Um, and we're just updating our third edition. But one of the things that in this edition, which will be coming out next year, is that the real difficulty of acting for Schedule 1 mothers um, with the cost issues, and the, because of course they're not getting anything if it's if it's the mother, the applicant, they're not getting anything in their own right. And there is a real difficulty in cost, particularly for the practitioner, especially if, as we see in the cases, it's almost assumed that you're only allowed, say, 70% of uh, of the cost. So yeah. that's something we're really focusing on. 
And then finally, in terms of the sort of interests, um, sort of thinking on the less contentious side, I'm, I'm an accredited mediator. And I love the variety and the opportunity of seeing the couple directly, which obviously, unless you're a mediator, you don't work with both with the couple. And I think that makes a real difference. I, I enjoy it working with a couple that really want to uh, work the issues out for the finances and the children. But also it really reminds you that there is always two sides of the story and every part of the couple has a, their own history of what has gone on. And I think being a mediator, it really reminds you. I know that obviously, Suzanne, you're such an expert mediator, but you, like me, still have a, you know, a litigation practice or uh, acting for individuals. Yeah, and I, and I actually, Charlotte, I was going to say, I think that's really important. I think it's really important that they inform each other. I think your litigation practice, in fact, I have to confess, I'm, I'm in some very big litigation at the moment and I love it. And, you know, I'm enjoying the rigour of litigation. Yeah. But then you're quite right when you're mediating, you see you're using very different skills, but it does remind you that there are the two sides and that you should never forget that when you're litigating. So very interesting. And I think also just as a mediator, um, particularly when there are children involved, and I think we'll come on to it, I'm sure, later, the work that I've been doing recently with the Family Solutions Group. But again, because I do finance and children, but because I'm a mediator and still do litigation, it really reminds you, even in the big financial litigation cases, that there are children involved and the steps that you take as a lawyer and the advice that you give to clients right from early on can really affect the family and particularly the children. And I think being a mediator, A, the training is obviously uh, makes a difference, but I think it's really helped me being a family lawyer. Mm. And also it's been interesting to see how mediation has evolved over the years and that sort of segues in rather nicely to your 25 years and what do you think has changed really during that time? Yeah I mean I think I've obviously I've been thinking about that a lot about because of the anniversary but also given that it's been a very unusual year is one way of putting it and we've all had probably more time than we usually have to reflect um, and I also um, wrote an article for Women and Family Law where I talked about the changes professionally and also for me personally, which I'm happy to talk about if you if you want to in a bit. But I mean, just thinking about sort of changes in the family law world and also the wider world, um, and obviously they've been significant. I mean, it's interesting to think I was offered my job at Kingsley Napley the day that Tony Blair got into power, <laughs> which things will only get better. <laughs> exactly. So that shows how long ago it was. Um, it was a sunny day, I remember, and we'd I'd had a party. It was a day after the election because I'd had a party the night before. I'd taken the day off because of that, and then got a call from the recruitment agent. Anyway, and sadly, sad to say, it's been fantastic. But I'm still at Kingsley Napley 25 years ago. I've only ever had sort of two jobs. So uh, anyway, uh, so I, I suppose in my experience with working for lots of firms, I just haven't had that. I've been at Kingsley Napley and my home and have been very happy there but um, I suppose for me just thinking back I would say first attitudes in the workplace um, are very different and for me personally it's not it's not something I've particularly noticed because I've been at two very good firms and Kingsley Napley have really been uh, at the forefront there's a lot of you know more than 50% of women have been partners so I've never had to battle that I know some people have because of gender um, but I do certainly remember you know, when I was uh, first trained where comments were made about women wearing trousers and 
you know, didn't approve and things like that. And also, I think in the wider world, you know, the kind of clubs that existed and it, it, it just was there and we didn't think about it then. But looking back um, and we're thinking about the sort of Me Too movement, things were very, very different. Um, I mean, as I said, personally, I've never had a problem or issue and I was offered my equity partnership when my twins were eight months old so it's something I've, I don't really think about at all but I think when you when you think about things like you know flexible working um, and returning parents from maternity leave things have changed hugely I mean a lot of my friends that I was at university with who had you know good jobs gave up when they had children I'm sure it's the same for mm. friends of yours whereas certainly with our team at the moment there is an absolute expectation there and, and obviously a hope but there's an expectation that people will come back whereas I think in the past it was a kind of conversation that may, you might have and think are they going to come back are they not it's almost a surprise when they don't come back and I think that's really positive absolutely and of course that's changed even further in the pandemic I mean I think the flexible working is absolutely at the fore now and any naysayers have, have got nowhere to go because now nine months later, we're pretty much all working Absolutely. from home. Absolutely. So, um, it's been so a game changer. That the, the, the things that have changed in the last nine months, it's almost sort of concertinaed the change into nine months that could have taken 10 years, which is really interesting in the workplace. I agree. That's one of the positive things that will have come out of the pan pandemic. I completely agree. And I think obviously connected to that is the technology um, because that's been possible. I mean, goodness knows how we'd have coped if the pandemic had been 25 years ago. I mean, when I was when I first qualified, or I can't remember if it was my training or on qualification, but I remember having my first email address. I mean, we didn't have emails. I mean, everything, and you'll remember, everything was done with letters or then faxes. Well, I was going uh, to say, I remember the first fax. Yeah. But that's much worse. Yeah. Not even emails. I know. And things would take letters, you know, you'd take instructions from a client, and there was a lot of Chinese whispers, but then you'd wait for a week. And obviously, that wasn't good for family. But then I think we've come to the other extreme where things that took days have now been concertinaed into hours, or sometimes minutes where people expect an instant response. And I think that sort of 24 seven culture that we live in um, has really been focused again in the pandemic. But I think what there is now, which there wasn't several years ago, is there's a real focus on mental health. Mm -hmm. And I think we've really got fantastic support from the president of the family division about our well beings. And I think that is something which I think we're gonna have to take forward and we will do into, into 2021. And I think particularly for junior lawyers, you know, it's easier for us who are, I'm not saying we're at the end of, towards the end of our career, but um, we're certainly at the latter part of our career than the beginning of our career. Um, so we're kind of, we have life experience. We've got, you know, pressures that we've dealt with outside of, of work. So we've, we can probably deal with it better. But for junior lawyers coming through, clients are so much more demanding in my experience than they were, partly because of techno technology, but also I'm sure for other reasons. You know, the internet's made, been, been uh, had a massive impact in that, you know, clients question what we advise because they're getting advice and they can read it themselves from lots of different places. So that I, my experience is they can be more challenging. So I think we really need to look after ourselves and particularly for our junior lawyers. Uh, who are coming through. Um, Absolutely. And I think also in this pandemic, 
you know, we've seen, haven't we, the difference between people who are very fortunate to have houses or gardens and then other people living in flats without any outdoor space. And in particular, I felt you know, in terms of business development, it's been very difficult for junior people to establish their careers and make their contacts and connections via Zoom. Whereas it's very different if you know a lot of people and you just pick up the phone or have a Zoom or a chat or whatever. So I think that is a real focus that we should have in the future. Yeah, I mean, on a sort of more positive note, um, sort of thinking of other changes, um, and I think, that, as we've already discussed, there are so many more options available to clients, how to resolve the issues outside court. We've already obviously talked about mediation. You and I both have done a lot of mediation, which was obviously around 25 years ago. But since then, we've had collaborative law. So that was obviously introduced in the mid 90s, which is a long time ago. Um, I mean, I was lucky enough, uh, again, actually talking about qu quite a lot about James Pirry, but that says a lot about how what, what, what an impact he's had on family law. But he arranged the very first training course, um, got Pauline Tesler, who came over from California. And there were 15 of us who trained. Um, and I, 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 that for me, it was absolutely something that I thought was really would fit in well with how I wanted to practice. And so J James and I were both at um, the on the National Committee of Resolution at that time. So we sort of helped build it up and, and hand it over to resolution. And it's been a real success. But I mean, beyond collaborative law, of course, you being the leader, the, the leader in arbitration, um, which of course is, I think, next year particularly following the case of Haley, I'm sure we're going to see arbitration really develop but we have private FDRs and all of those things we didn't even have FDRs when I first qualified you remember when we absolutely went and not FDRs etc so narrative statement you know long narrative long. affidavits actually they want narrative statements yes yeah, things went on for years so yeah. um and I suppose just um finally the other sort of change I would say again looking at you know, the practice now as to what it was like when when I first qualified was the amount of cases that have sort of international aspects. Yeah. And I think that reflects, you know, society and the increasing globalization there's been, you know, London has really become the global center. So a lot of our cases, particularly for all of us working in London, have uh, uh, there's a big international aspect. Be interesting to see again next year Brexit, Brexit how that's going to be affected, but yeah. time will tell. Mm, absolutely. And just changing tack again, what's been the proudest moment in your career? Oh, gosh, that's a, oh, that's a, a difficult, difficult question to ask because this is um, we've got to um, let me think about that. Can I have a couple? Um, you can. It's like Desert Island discs. You can take two things. <laughs> OK, um, I have to say, I think uh, for me personally, it was when I did the strictly competition through Kingsley Napley, which you'll you'll know about um uh I Suzanne. I did that a couple of years ago. Um one of our trainees who was then a paralegal Lucy in the property team had sent an email around just before Christmas saying she's an amazing amateur dancer. You know, she she thought um it might be a good thing for Kingsley Napley to do to raise money for one of our charities. I mean Kings Napley Every year we have a couple of charities, which we do a lot of things for. And that year it was SANE, the mental health charity SANE. So she sent this email around saying, anybody interested in learning to dance? I've got a lot of my friends who are very good dancers. You know, they've all been in competitions together. Um, and I thought, actually, I'm going to be 50 next year. This would be a good thing. And I literally have never really danced 
So I was completely outside my comfort zone, had, um, I think I'd done Scottish country, country dancing at school when I was eight, and I'm not exaggerating, that was about it. But I thought, yes, great opportunity. And I was fortunate enough to be paired with this lovely uh, 29 year old paediatrician, Dean, who's become a very good friend. It's just like the program. Um, <laughs> and he used to come round. I had the kids obviously at home. I live obviously on my own with the kids. Um, and he used to come round. He lived in Croydon, not too far away. I'm in Wimbledon, pushed the sofa back and he taught me how to dance. Fantastic. And we, um, I was the eldest, I have to say, in the competition um, and the most senior person that there was 12 of us. I hope I wasn't Anne Widdicombe, like the Anne Widdicombe character. I've never been, I haven't been told that. I was doing a rumba um, and Robin Windsor, for those Strictly fans, um, Robin Windsor was a former dancer. He was the lead judge. Um, and I have to say, I think my moment was when he gave me a nine for my rumba Ooh, and, fantastic. And, and said I was captivating. <laughs> that will go on my <laughs> gravestone. Anyway, on, the, on a really positive note, we raised about £16,000 for Sane and it was just an amazing experience. So I think because for me, it was so out of my comfort zone, it was putting myself out there and doing something in front of lots of people. I feel um, that that's something I'm proud of. Um, I need to ask you, Charlotte, are you still partial to a spray tan? Um, funny enough, I haven't had one. I, I did enjoy it. That was an opportunity. I'd never had one before and I haven't had one since, but um, may, maybe the next time I dance, I'm not sure when that will be. But um, yeah, no, it was uh, it was a fun experience. Um, and I think just in terms of um, sort of another, I mean, obviously, the case is like the schedule one case I described. I think where you've got a case where you feel you've done a good job and you've achieved a good result and it's one where you feel it's the right outcome then that's always something you're proud of. It doesn't always happen. Um, but I think these days, in terms of what I take most pride on, pride in, I think it's the achievements of the team. I mean, obviously I've been head of the team for a few years now, um, but I'm very fortunate and I've got, a, we've built up a really, you know, Jane Keir and I, and Jane and I, Jane interviewed me all those years ago. And so Jane and I have worked together for 25 years and she and I have built up a really, fantastic team and there's an amazing bunch of junior lawyers and I think for me I was one of the moments um, I was proud of was when I think it was a year or two years ago when one of the legal directories I can't remember if it was legal 500 I think where literally four or five of the associates were named and for me that was just fantastic and they're still with us and obviously um, you know I love it when they win awards accolades and you know when they're promoted so you know, one of my former trainees, Connie Atkinson, uh, has just become a partner along with Abby, who joined us as a junior lawyer sort of when she was a couple of years qualified. And I just feel really proud to see how they've become such brilliant lawyers and they're generally lovely women and good friends of mine. So I think that's what I these days I take most pride in. Yeah, and it's great to see people coming through the ranks, as you say, it's fantastic. Yeah. And we've sort of touched on this and you did write a very powerful um, article for women in family law about how family law had sort of affected you personally or during the pandemic, I think. But I just wondered if you'd say a few words about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting when, the, you know, again, as I said, because I'd written the article, I'm, it's something I've thought about how your life, your personal life, it's something we as all family lawyers are aware of. And it's only when you stop and reflect, you think how the two have gone along together. And obviously I've been at King Dinapoli for what, 22 years, 23 years, gosh, a long time, and been through all the stages of life. So sort of 
breakup. I was living with a boyfriend when I arrived, broke up with a boyfriend, then met and then married my now former husband, met him through resolution. So when the days of Solicitors Family Law Association, I was on the National Committee and we decided to become resolution. Well, he was the commercial lawyer advising us on that. And we met over the signing of the directorship document. So there is a sort of synergy there. Um, he, we, I moved to York. We lived, he lived, um, he still lives in York. Sadly, we separated. We had our, you know, our, my two children who are now 11. Um, and I think for me, those sort of all those different things that you've gone through inevitably affects you as a family lawyer. Um, I mean, clients often or people ask, you know, having children, does it change you as a lawyer or, or et cetera? And I think probably not, to be honest. I think what's affected me most is obviously going through separation divorce, which is something, you know, it's, you know, you, you, you have to go through it to, we've, we've all been through in our lives diff, difficult relationships. But I think being a family lawyer makes you much more aware of how that might impact you. Um, I mean, I think, for me, I think you never really uh, get over the guilt. I mean, I was fortunate in that my parents, who are in their 80s, have been married for 61 years. And so I was fortunate that I came from uh, parents who, was, you know, who were happily married. Um, but I, so I think, therefore, perhaps more impact that you think you don't choose, nobody chooses to, to divorce. Everybody, uh, the vast majority go into marriage thinking it is for life. So you're very aware of the effects of the children. And I think that's helped me being a family lawyer and also helped me being a separated parent because I'm acutely aware of the, conf the effects of conflict on children. And I've really, despite difficulties, and obviously um, Richard, my ex, lives in, in York and I'm in London. So there have been challenges. But I think one thing I'm proud of, going back to your question, is that um, the children haven't seen too much conflict. I won't pretend they've not seen any, but we've I've, we've we've really striven to keep um, that away from them. I mean, I was fortunate in the sense that although it was very very hard at the time, they were two and a half when we separated, so they've not their memories are used to us living separately, which I think in some ways has made it easier. But you know, because we live, you know, we live in different cities. Um, you know, we have to make it work and he comes and stays. We do things as a family and the children are just used to it. And obviously, you know, I hope um, that they haven't been affected by it and they can see us working together. So I think that's something that as going back to your question, I've tried to bring into being a family lawyer and a mediator, although I'm very aware that um, everybody's situation is different. And I certainly, you know, what works for me wouldn't work for many other people so I'm also very aware of not talking about my situation uh says me talking about it on a podcast yeah. but in terms I'm I, I I'm I, in terms of clients it's sort of that's we've all bring our own lives to it um yeah. but I think that's something I think in particularly in the children issues yeah and I, thanks for being so open uh, both in this podcast and also in your article because I think it does help people to know that people have been through difficulties and yet they're very successful as you are and I think that's great so perhaps we can sort of turn your attention now to three top tips that you would give anyone thinking of a career in family law and family law or law generally do you think I or? think well it's up to you I don't really mind yeah I mean I think first of all just thinking about law generally um I would say to anybody not having done law as a degree um, if you can afford to, and I appreciate, you know, 
that's a concern for all of us about the, the you know anyone coming into it but it's one extra year not to have done a law degree if if you if you can i would not necessarily do law as a degree unless you really want to so do what you would like to do because it's very easy to, con to convert and there are lots of opportunities you know there are firms sponsoring etc so there are lots of different opportunities so do the degree that you want to do is what i would say i would also say try and get work experience in a variety of firms and don't be um overly focused on one area look at me i thought i was going to be like Perry Mason and be the best criminal lawyer out there, but ended up, you know, not so dissimilar, but ended up being a family lawyer. Just and I thought I was going to be a European lawyer. Yeah, I did well, French and German with yeah. law on the basis I was absolutely going to go and work in Strasbourg. Yeah, exactly. We all come out with all of these mm -hmm. things that we're going to do. And um, so what I would do is get, if you can, because I know it's not always easy these days, get as much experience. Also um, reach out to people, you know, just for coffee or meet other lawyers, because I quite often, you know, particularly we get, you know, spec as you will do, get speculative applications from someone. And, you know, even if you haven't got a job, I quite often just say, yeah, no job, but I'm happy. Or perhaps they want to meet with one of the associates to talk about it. Um, and, you know, doing things like um, take opportunities. So, for example, Kington Apley um, for the last couple of years done the Legal Apprentice, yeah. last three years. And I was th this year, um, we managed to persuade our senior partner, who's originally a criminal lawyer, we did it as a family law. The final was a family law um, final. So we had secondary schools. So it's a huge response. I think there's something like 800 applications. So these are secondary schools all around the country who apply and they end up, the winner will end up with an apprenticeship. So a different route into, fact, in, into law. Um, but I was so impressed by the finalists. and. Um, interestingly, we we chose to do rather than do a court, we were thinking of doing a court hearing or an FDR. We ended up just doing a, a roundtable meeting to see that they could perhaps use skills they hadn't thought would be required in in, in law, such as negotiation and listening, um, etc. And we were so impressed by by how they uh, how they dealt with it. Um, and I suppose what I would say is just keep your eyes open, quite at an early stage. Um, I would also say be yourself be authentic um i've i think you and i i would i would count you as that as well just you know it's very difficult to be someone you're not and to mm -hmm. to maintain that um and i think that's important and find out what interests you you know do whatever it might be and if you can and this is much for people specializing once perhaps once they've decided that family laws their thing is perhaps find a niche if you can write about it um do what's important to you and i think these days we're much more aware of diversity so don't be afraid to stand out i think be yourself and i think for me and i would i'm sure suzanne you would say the same for, for sort of to get on is actually the most important thing is to get on with people because your colleagues and that's whoever it is I think it's difficult to get on is my view and that's what I often say to sort of godchildren who are worried about exams and all of that and or they haven't got into a particular university that they wanted to and they're worried about how that will affect their career or whatever it might be I if they're kind of good people who get on with people I'm sure that will stand them a lot I've yes. just it's very interesting I am um, someone asked me the same question I gave practically the same answers which was be authentic be passionate. And my final one was have fun. Yeah, absolutely. 
otherwise you won't you won't last in it you won't last no. i say the other thing that if i was going back and if you'd said to me well what would you do differently i think probably learn a language fluently i probably would do that i mean i speak basic french and spanish um but i just wonder whether i'd be you know that might have helped me but anyway that's the other thing my, uh, yeah. my lockdown skill has been learning spanish so that's been fascinating for me i have loved it oh it's great it's, i love spanish yeah. well maybe yeah. there you go suzanne we can uh, we can <laughs> we'll now speak spanish to each other that's embarrassing so i won't be able to do anything so i'm going to move us swiftly on yeah. rather than speaking spanish to um really the to, to now and the family solutions group and your involvement in that the key point about the recommendations and what you hope the family solutions group will bring to us as family lawyers for the future so i know three questions there okay so i think the first one if i understood it right was sort of how did you get involved yeah. in the first place um so it's it's interesting actually I'm, I'm going to go back to where i started it right at the beginning of the conversation i was talking about when i was at bristol and and involved with the local prison well i did that with a, a good friend of mine lisa harker who has um subsequently been involved very involved in the charity sector so she's always had leading roles in charities but never in the family law field until now and I think about 18 months ago, she um, became director of the Nuffield um, Family Justice Observatory, which you will have heard of, and which is basically set up to use sort of data and research to improve children's experience in the justice system. I hope I've explained it properly, but it's it's they, they got some funding from the Nuffield Foundation. Um, so. Um, because of that link, obviously, I've been talking to Lisa a lot and she talked to me because of obviously the work I do with particularly in private law children cases. She um, the Nuffield had hosted about a year ago, in fact, November last year, they hosted um, a sort of thinking tank day, which um, on the back of the private law working group, which is the group chaired by Stephen Cobb under the yeah. obviously the um, president set it up. And so it was around themes around um, the private law working group. Um, and so I went to that and had a really, really interesting day, met lots of really interesting people. And we talked about um, what improvements in the family justice system. And actually what was talked a lot about there was the need to look at it much earlier on, not wait for the case, cases to go to court, but look at the sort of pre-court space from when the you know clients first separated. And at that day was Helen Adam, Mm -hmm. who is the chair of the family solutions group and who is on the uh, had been on the private law working group yeah. and she had been asked by Stephen Cobb to set up this family solutions group so looking at it as a subcommittee of the private law working group to look at the sort of pre-court space so because we'd engaged well and we'd kept in contact she asked me to be a check with Stephen Cobb and they asked me to be on the group and I was on the group I think mainly as a lawyer although obviously I'm a mediator and an accredited mediator um, I am a practicing lawyer, so that was very much my role on the committee, which has been, can I say, um, an amazing group to be on. Um, people were on the group um, in their individual capacity, although obviously there was probably around 50, there's about 15 of us, um, maybe a bit more, um, and from all disciplines. So it was a proper multidisciplinary group, which I think uh, worked. It was really interesting, and we all learned a lot about what each other um what do we, which other do day to day um but uh, it, it was an incredibly collaborative group and we met we managed to meet twice before lockdown um 
And since then, we've obviously met remotely. And the main task of the group was to find, to, to focus on the pre-court space, to focus on um, on children, private law children. It wasn't focused on the financial cases, but to really come up with recommendations, quite, some of them quite quick fixes that we could do mm -hmm. to improve it. Um, and obviously, we know, of course, um, that the, the huge amount of cases that are going to court and the president has talked about it. And particularly, I mean, it's been heightened during the pandemic. So although it was nothing to do with the pandemic, it's it was sort of quite timely. And I think it's also it was also timely. Again, I don't think this was planned, but with obviously no fault divorce next year, it's it's this is a good time to look at it. Um, and so the task of the group was to produce this report, which we did, um, and it was very much led by Helen Adam, who got together a wonderful group of, of individuals. Um, but we all did our own bit. And as I said, my, my sort of piece was to focus on the sort of legal profession. So the recommendations, that was the the piece that I was leading on, but there was a whole range. There was academics, you know, um, Dr. Jan Ewing from the University of Exeter. We had the judge, Martin Dancy from, from Dorset. We had, a, you know, mediators, family therapists, CAFCAS, MOJ. So it was a really proper group and everybody um, fed into it and produced this report. And interestingly, I mean, I'm happy to talk about the recommendations report, but that was our sort of remit. But then we had the report and we still want to meet <laughs> because That's of course every, a we enjoy our meetings but also people are saying well we want you to take some of these things forward and we don't want it just to sort of go down like some other reports have done so that's fantastic so do you want to just give us the sort of three main highlights or the main highlights of the report yeah and if i can just perhaps give three of the sort of the main report the sort of the, the focus and then it may be as given that we're doing this for I think women and family law it might be worth me just a couple of points about law, the legal profession in particular yeah. um, so I think I think first sort of the main point about the report is putting the rights and needs of children at the center of any parental separation I think that's the key that the one the biggest takeaway hence the title what about me Mm -hmm. and the photo of the on yeah, the which report. is very powerful by the way I, I just even seeing the photo at the front just really made you realize what it was about and how important that was as a family lawyer so really powerful yeah so obviously a lot of the recommendations that has had a the child is is really the focus of all the recommendations actually mm. um some more specific than others I mean, so but sort of keeping it high level because we haven't got much time so that is obviously the first point I should say. I think the other thing that we would say is we're proposing a much more coordinated, joined up approach across government departments to tackle the financial and indeed the human cost of family breakdown. I mean, there's no one government department that deal with the family. There's, I think, 13 departments that all touch on it. And obviously that doesn't help the family. Um, and obviously, it, it also means that when one's looking at family separation, it immediately gets connected to the Ministry of Justice. So that therefore makes you think about court, which is not the right, not the first thought. Obviously, for many families, it ends up it has to be the, the right course, but it shouldn't be the first thought. So I think that's something that's important. Um, we're also um, really wanting, and this is what we'd recommend is, is a proper campaign of public information and education with the aim of really making a good shift 
a permanent shift in cultural attitudes. So effectively encouraging separating parents to be steered away from acrimonious court proceedings and encouraging parents to work together, but with support. So it's that change, which obviously takes time, but I think that's something we would like. And then I think it's important to just to reiterate that, when, that the group are not saying court is bad and parents have to work together. That's mm -hmm. absolutely the opposite. But what we're trying to adjust about when court and then obviously what we've introduced is the concepts of um, sort of two pathways, one being a safety pathway so that obviously such cases are identified early. So there's an early triage sort of system um, where, you know, court is, is definitely the right answer, but then have a sort of a separate pa uh, pathway, which we hope would be for most parents, which is the cooperative parenting pathway. So that's a term we've used rather than co-parenting, which I think a mm -hmm. lot of clients think that means 50-50. So we prefer the, the, the term cooperative. And that's where the legal response isn't necessarily the only or the default option, um, unless there's safety concerns, as I said. So it's really about supporting parents to be child focused. So that's a sort of the holistic, looking at it holistically. So that's a sort of the general report. And I think just from for the recommendations that, you know, I was leading on as, as a lawyer, it was really, there were sort of a couple things which I hope we can work forward with support is um, I think as, as lawyers, um, we underestimate, and we've already talked about that, this morning, but we underestimate the effect that we have on clients and on on what path they take. They're incredibly vulnerable when they first meet us. Um, and I know that most family lawyers will will strive to provide clients with all the right options, but there are some that don't. Um, and I think and that may not be intentional. It's through lack of training. I mean, I think the benefit of having you and I having had mediation training, it really opens your eyes to issues such as the effect we've already talked about on conflict on children, but also mental health issues. You know, we need training on addiction, the effects of family breakdown, the effects of grief, what the parents are going through, um, but also more training on what the non-court options that are available. I mean, all that training is out there and there are certain firms, you know, we've, um, Flip who have, have sort of led it, but that's, I think one of my difficulties is that some of that training, the people that go to the training, the people, not necessarily the people who need it, because no, they, they sort of self-select the <laughs> people who are already mediators and collaborative practitioners. Exactly. So what I've said is that it should be mandatory training, which mm -hmm. is something nobody teaches us all the skills that we know are essential to be a good family lawyer. We get the legal training and then it's very much dependent on whether you've ended up which firm you've ended up at, which people you've worked with, the kind of cases you're doing. So I think, I know obviously resolution have really led the way in the last, what, 40 years they've been going. Yeah. Um, so we would very much, um, as yet, um, obviously resolution will be considering the report, but we very much look forward to working with them and the Law Society who have already said um, that they will update the protocol, which we should all be um, following, which recommends the protocol actually has enshrined the resolutions code of practice, but most people don't think about the protocol these days. But the Law Society, we, we held a webinar, which I know you were at, Suzanne, really with the president and Stephen Cobb to really publicise the report. And immediately we had um, the Law Society said, yes, we were, we're, we're moving forward with the, with the fifth protocol. Um, so I think that is a bit of a momentum. And I think for me as as, as lawyers, which, rec which reflects the whole sort of ethos of the report is the idea of a more holistic approach um, for us as, as family lawyers to 
recognise uh, when we need to bring in other professionals, obviously for the financial work, whether it's accounting sector, but focusing what the report is on the children work, it's family therapists, child therapists, um, and working out that actually we may not always be the right people and we should be the first to say we're not. So I think that's, that's as well. Charlotte, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. And can I say, it's been really, I think you thought about it. It's been a very reflective um, interview uh, podcast. And I've loved hearing about your 25 years and your success. And notwithstanding the huge success that you've attained, just knowing that you're a deeply nice person and that shines through. So thank you very much for joining me today. And we'd just say goodbye now. So thanks to everyone for listening. Bye. And thank you, Suzanne.